Hi everyone, it's Scott. I wanted to share some exciting news about something new that we're trying with NAIS Member Voices. Starting this year, we're still going to be releasing new episodes, but we'll also be releasing some timely episodes from our archive. We hope this will help you to catch up on episodes you might have missed and uncover additional insight that can help serve you and your school. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of NEIS Member Voices, which is a brand new NEIS podcast focusing on you, the hardworking individuals that make up the independent school community. I'm Scott Donaldson, NEIS Member Engagement Coordinator, and today I'll be speaking with Chrissy Caceres, Assistant Head of School at Georgetown Day School uh, right here in D.C., and the proud parent of three daughters who also attend the school. So Chrissy, welcome to Member Voices. It's wonderful to be welcomed. Thank you so much. I think that this is a wonderful new feature of NAIS because it allows us to really build connections with one another um, across our various experiences and school environments. So thank you so much, Scott, for having me on today. No, thank you for joining uh, me. I really appreciate it. And that's exactly what we're going for. So I really appreciate that feedback. Thanks for saying that. So you have three daughters who attend the school. Uh, What is that like? Let's start off there. Yes. Well, my daughters um, are, I have one in each division, which is also a unique piece. So I have a high schooler in the 10th grade, and I have a middle schooler in the 8th grade, and I have a lower schooler in the 4th grade. And because my background Um, involves having been a teacher, an educator right in the classroom, um, having been uh, head of a division as a lower school uh, division head, and now in an all-school capacity. um, Much of my work really intersects with my values and wishes for my children. So to have them here in the environment that I step into each and every day just brings about a more punctuated sense of purpose of what's being done each day. So for me, I consider it uh, quite a blessing of the two coming together. Could you tell me a little bit more about uh, Georgetown Day School, uh, the the history of the school as much as you want to share and uh, the student population? Absolutely. Georgetown Day School was founded in 1945. It was founded um, at a time when schools were segregated in Washington, D.C., and several families came together, about six families came together of diverse backgrounds, diverse racially and ethnically, uh, diverse in religious and spiritual affiliations, uh, diverse in lived experiences, and they um, determined that they were going to open up a school Um, in which the grounding principle was a school that provided access uh, to people of diverse backgrounds who otherwise wouldn't be able to be in a school environment together, uh, and thus launched Georgetown Day School. An interesting fact is that we've never resided in Georgetown, um, but one of the initial thoughts was that um, the school might, and so by that point it was named. Um, And so we've carried the name Georgetown Day School. We're close to Georgetown on the lower middle school campus, but we've never physically actually been in Georgetown. Um, We are a pre-K to 12 uh, school. We have about 525 students on each of our campuses. So there's a lower and middle school campus over in MacArthur Boulevard um, in what's called the Palisades neighborhood of Washington, D.C. And then we have a high school campus um, in Tenleytown which is right off of Wisconsin Avenue. Um, Our school population is incredibly diverse. We have um, about 40% students of color. Uh, We have students of every 
um, across the socioeconomic spectrum, a varied religious spiritual um, background representing many, many different geographic locations in Maryland and Virginia and Washington, D.C. Um, we have many languages represented. And I would say that when it comes to um, exploration of gender, gender fluidity, sexuality, that's also something that uh, we hold dear as part of the fabric of identity at the school. Um, the same is true in our faculty and staff. Um, over 30% of our faculty and staff are um, uh, people of color. And beyond that, that's one layer of diversity. Again, the many layers that are named that I named are also very much proudly represented in the fabric of the school. And so why that is important is because that really influences uh, so much of what we do. You know, as a school, we were founded with the idea that every student, every child, um, every community member has strengths and gifts within, and that it is our job to provide the conditions that make it possible for each individual in the community to be their full authentic selves. Um, that we were a school that was founded um, with the understanding that sharing varied perspectives and values were important. In doing so, we knew that it meant taking a lot of risks, risks that often um, are very complex in nature and sometimes even painful. Um, we never claim to um, have the answer or have um, the perfect formula of that engagement um, because it's in the imperfection that we feel that the greatest growth um, comes through. And so as a community that continues to be um, incredibly committed to values of inclusivity and values of shared learning and values of um, academic engagement that does not compromise um, a lens of social justice, that we're also a school that believes mightily that we have a responsibility to um, have a positive social impact in our actions, not just within the walls of the school, but as much as possible outside of our school. Um, and so that definitely influences the types of programming that's a part of the school. So just to give you a sense of the breadth of engagement, um, my job is to really do as much as possible to ensure that our mission is not just aspirational in nature, but is actionable. And so in how many ways can we enact the tenets and values of the school in our day-to-day -day experiences um, is, is really the best way to encapsulate what motivates my role. Wow. And it sounds like I'm sure you have a ton of free time too, right? Oh, <laughs> that's a that's a fascinating question, because one of the things that, of course, um, in leadership, I certainly am constantly minding is our power to role model. And what does it mean to provide positive modeling for everyone who we work with, understanding that there's got to be compassion at the heart of what we do. And that without balance and without the opportunity to find point of centeredness, and self-reflection, we really reach a plateau in the possibilities um, that are inherent within each of us. And so I'm constantly challenged by um, ways to find that centeredness. Um, thankfully, I had seven years in a fabulous Quaker school, friend school, Abington Friends School, um, in which I really, um, 
found my personality um, and my energy found a home. And so I learned a lot in how to engage in centeredness as a practice in remaining mindful in opportunities to breathe, um, to find stillness and to find strength in that stillness. Um, so while I do not have a lot of um, free time, I'm scheduled pretty much from the morning until the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, even as I go and transition into a meeting or into a gathering or into a reactive moment with a student who has a need, I say, why don't we just take a moment and just center ourselves and breathe together um, and understand that what's going to matter most at the end of this is how meaningful this connection is um, and how much we can be there for each other. And um, even just providing those words, um, I think certainly for me, uh, centers me into, into knowing that even though there may be 20 things that happened before and 10 that are coming after, what matters in this singular moment is the person or people before me. Um, and that, that's something that I hold dear every day. I forget the exact phrasing that you used, but you mentioned that um, you were sort of really, uh, I guess, molded and shaped it at Abington Friends School or it, or it helped you to find... Um, you're calling. I'm not sure exactly what you said. I apologize. But could you, could we revisit that? And could you talk a little bit more about um, your time there and, and, and what it did for you? Absolutely. Um, I entered Abington Friends School after 10 years at a school called the Episcopal Academy in Pennsylvania. That's where I did uh, about eight years of teaching. And then I was assistant uh, head of the lower school. Um, and from that, I transitioned into leading a division um, that eventually by the time that I exited, um, I was helping, um, I mean, I was leading a division that began at three years old. Um, so early childhood through upper elementary. Um, and Abington Friends School is one of the oldest Quaker schools in the country. Um, it is a school that really embodies uh, Quaker principles of integrity and um, peace and um all of the various cornerstones um, that really define Quaker identity, simplicity, um, equality, were embodied in the way the work, the work was done within the school. And every single week, there was meeting for worship. And so I'm actually looking at a picture of the meeting house now that I have framed on my desk. Um, and I took the walk with all of the lower school children and all of the teachers every day, I mean, every week to the meeting house. And we spent an hour um, in silence and speaking from that silence to the light within with the idea that all of us have a point of deep connection um, that we can access. Um, and that when we do that, we're able to engage our truths together and that we're able to communicate those truths. Um, and so that, that disciplined manner of really listening to the voices that we have within ourselves, um, to vulnerably delve into them, understanding that we are each other's first teacher, um, was, was a really powerful model, certainly in shaping my leadership. Um, and so my orientation is one that truly believes that my job first is to allow uh, voices to be shared. 
um, allow for people to feel free to share those voices. Allow me to listen and learn from those voices and then find ways in which there can be honest connections made between my own thoughts and ideas and points of expertise and the voice and gifts and strengths that that person brings. Um, and that when we do that, we release ego. And rather than focus on who made the decision that ultimately was the chosen one, what we focus on um, are the merits of the action that we took together. And that when we focus on that and we release ego as a point of leadership, mm -hmm. what we allow is to understand that every single person in the room actually matters. Um, and so that has uh, been fused within my being in such a way that, uh, again, not perfectly, but that I try to have as a lamppost um, that I look to every time and say, am I um, being a true listener? Am I minding my own contributions? Am I finding value? and making space, not even finding value, but am I making space for the valuable contributions of others? Um, and in what ways are we intentionally making a connection? Um, because that's how sustainable change comes about. And with everything that we're facing in our country today, with the many um, messages that we are receiving of otherness, of divisiveness, um, and this is regardless of what political viewpoints people may hold. So um, what I'm about to say is not partisan in nature as much as grounded in humanity. Um, and so I find that many of the messages that we are hearing upon social media really strike um, at the trunk of humanity, at what it means to have a healthy, vibrant, engaged, and shared experience among people with diverse perspectives and backgrounds. And viewpoint diversity is the one realm of diversity that often is not captured and placed at the center. And when I think about what is challenging our school community now more than ever among all constituents is um, being able to remain connected to a conversation when um, there is deep disagreement um, among those in the room. And so, for example, when you're a school that's, that's known for its liberal identity, its progressive um, identity and values, and you have various points of views on the spectrum of whether you want to name it conservative to progressive or um, restrictive to not, whatever that may mean, at those points, we are challenged. We are challenged to say, I may not agree with you, but your voice does matter and I need to be able to make space for it. Mm -hmm. And to not do that is to deny the very principles that define who we are. And so our greatest challenge, and I would argue not at Georgetown Day School, but all over, is to make space for the layers, layers of vulnerability that we will delve into as we continue to try to build uh, connections with those who think least like us um, because that's the only way in which, in which there's going to be shared learning and expanded consciousness. 
Um, and it's so much more comfortable to remain with those who think like us, feel like us, live like us. That is so much more comfortable, but it's certainly not what is going to um, push us into the realm of risk-taking, into the realm of experiential engagement, into the realm of uh, newness um, and discovery and wonder. Um, and dare I say, possible joy. Um, and so... Uh, really, for me, it's approaching this like we would any learning experience. There are skills connected to that. There are skills to engaging in the difficult, in the complex, in the painful. Um, and we bear a responsibility to teach um, our young people whose frontal lobes are far from being fully developed how to incrementally grow in those skills. And to do that, we have to be willing to model them. Um, and develop them within ourselves. So, um, you know, the stakes are pretty high. I think that what you're talking about is so important and, and uh, inspiring, honestly. And, and we've kind of been circling uh, around it a little bit, but now I really want to dive into the causes that, you know, seem so uh, close to your heart, diversity and inclusion and um, in leadership especially. And, and I'm wondering if, if you were to think of some uh, best practices for creating an inclusive school community, um, if you'd be able to share any of those with us? In terms of best practices, I think one of the best practices is actually um, non-scripted um, points of connection. So for example, as educators and as leaders, we often want to go in with a plan. And we often work backwards from that plan. You know, our goal is to get to a place where we can all either come to a consensus on or agree upon. But I'm somebody who has devoted a lifetime working with little people, working with our youngest. And our youngest teaches each and every day that it's really when you go into a space and you have an invitation. And the invitation for a child may be, um, you know, a sandbox, right? A sandbox is an invitation. And that sandbox doesn't have any directions to it. Um, but they go to it and they start touching it and exploring it and moving in it and doing things with it. And as they go along, they make sense of their play. And they say, and this is how we're going to do it. And let's try this. Um, I find that as we get older, we let go of that more and more. And our impulse is to script our experiences. But what we do in those instances is that when we get to a place in that script that varies from where we wanted it to go, we hit a wall. And so a best practice has been for me um, simply inviting people to an open conversation that doesn't necessarily have a scripted agenda. And that's, that has a theme or a topic as the invitation to say, you know, this is a topic of conversation. I just want to hear your thoughts. Um, I've been working with our student engagement coordinator to design a lunch series for students that is just like that. They get to submit topics that they're interested in, show up with lunch, we provide dessert, and they can just openly talk about it. Um, so that's one best practice. Another best practice is to have conversations among affinity groups if the school has affinity groups or even if they don't have them formalized. Um, what does it mean to create experiences where people who have shared 
um, points of identity and whether those be defined by race and ethnicity or um, gender or sexuality, whatever those um, identities are, to allow them to engage with one another in ways that build opportunities for comfort and honest engagement, but also to provide opportunities where they can engage across those um, experiences as a way to build connection. Um, one of the ways that we do that is that there is an affinity group leadership council in which representatives from each of these student affinity groups come together to engage one another in what they're doing, to invite one another to experiences, to formulate programming together. Um, so that's another best practice, both the within and outside of or um, connected to others outside of our um, own point of identity. Uh, you participated in a training um, workshop uh, that we did uh, this past year. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about participatory leadership, uh, what it is, uh, and uh, you may have touched on this already, and how we do it. Yes, participatory leadership is a great love. Um, and <laughs> it is, when you talked about good practice, that's definitely a cornerstone good practice. And the premise of participatory leadership is that whenever we are engaging in a learning experience, um, everybody has a hand in it. And so, for example, um, if we feel that the room needs to be reconfigured because it's more conducive to the activities at hand, typically you have the facilitators in a room who are responsible for that workshop say, you know, participants, we're going to shift the room and then you're going to come back. In, particip in participatory leadership, everybody grabs a chair and a table and says, okay, how are we going to put it together? to really make the space what it needs to be for our shared learning experience. And I use that very basic, basic example um, because it really concretely illustrates participatory leadership. The idea that um, the outcome of this experience is not in the hands of any one person. Um, the other premise of participatory leadership is that every voice in the space matters. So whether you are in a small group configuration or in a large group configuration, the activities that you design in participatory leadership ultimately allow for everybody to have a way to engage. And by the way, voices do not mean verbal um, engagement. There are many ways in participatory leadership, whether it is writing you know, on a piece of paper on the table, sharing the notes with someone else. Um, so it also, in participatory leadership, you value highly different modalities and ways of learning. Um, and then the other premise in participatory leadership is that we all have to hold ourselves responsible for the ultimate goals and consequences um, of our actions. And that liability, that whole notion of liability, that is in everyone's hands. So how we show up is what we will get out of the experience. If I show up with an orientation of collaboration and of sharing my thoughts and of learning from others, then that's going to be the outcome. Um, and so there is a value placed on the energy that one brings into the space too in participatory leadership. Um, and so that th there are many, many um, modalities and, and, and 
uh, practical ways of illustrating participatory leadership, um, but it's as much a mindset as it is a practice. Great. Thank you. Um, and just hearing you talk about uh, diversity and inclusion um, and leadership, uh, you know, you can hear the passion. You can definitely tell that these are um, causes that you care a lot about. And, I, and I'm wondering if there's um, something specifically, I'm always interested in, in um, people's backgrounds, if there's something specifically that, that drew, you, drew you to care about this work or, or an experience um, that maybe you can point to that uh, helped draw you towards this uh, important uh, work that you obviously care a lot about. Yes, indeed. So I um, came to the United States with two parents in their 20s. Um, with all that we had were um, our suitcases. Um, and coming here not knowing a word of English um, and being such an expressive child, um, I felt like I had lost a part of myself. And so I made a commitment to myself that I was going to learn English. Um, and I would cry at night because I couldn't ask the one family member who was here in the United States. Um, so I would cry into my pillow and I would just say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Um, and six months later, I was speaking. Um, and a whole world opened up in my new home. And um, in terms of, there are many, many, many things that I could point to. You know, I was in Newark, New Jersey, which is uh, a predominantly um, Afro-Caribbean, uh, Latino, African-American community. Um, and I went to public schools in Newark. And then I went to a magnet high school called Science High School. And Science High School, I met um, a person who would change my life forever. His name is Brent Ferrand. I call him Papa Brent, and my children call him Pop Pop. Mm. Um, and called Grandma, um, his wife called her Grandma. Sadly, she passed away a little over a year ago. Um, but Pop Pop, uh, well, Mr. Ferrand, who I, uh, I called him Mr. Ferrand mm. always, I joined the debate team. And as part of the debate team, um, I got to travel. We were the only uh, debate team that was uh, all, uh, for the most part, students of color in the nation. And um, so we experienced, needless to say, at that time, um, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, a lot of uh, deeply hurtful and painful experiences, I have to say. Um, and yet, um, Mr. Fran would pull us aside and said, you know, you have the strength within you that you believe in. That is the only strength that you can count on. You cannot count on the strength that others are going to impart upon you. So you've got to find it. And how can I help you find it? Um, and so we continued on. And eventually, I became a part of the debates in the state of New Jersey that were talking about property taxes and the inequities in property taxes between urban schools and suburban schools. Um, and I got to be a student representative. And it's at that time that I really, really got connected to the world of activism and what it meant to, to use my voice for change. Um, and fast forward to our high school graduation, where I came a couple of points under um, the salutatorian. And so I asked her if I could write her speech, since only the salutatorian could deliver the speech and the valedictorian. Mm -hmm. And I was half a point under. So she let me write her speech. 
uh, lo and behold. And the speech was all about um, the fact that schools were being uh, treated as spaces for social control. <laughs> that was my point. <laughs> And that um, the inequities were really deep and that um, people were not aware and that people's lenses needed to be cleared. And I convinced my my friends to wear black armbands before we walked into the auditorium. And they went to the principal, went to Miss Friend and said, you have to tell Chrissy to tell everybody to take this off. And he stood to the side and he said, I will do no such thing. And there was pomp and circumstance and we walked in. Mm. And um, I remember that feeling of he didn't stop us. You know, he was our advocate. I know the word now um, to define what he was in that moment, but he was an advocate. He ardently believed that if we had a cause, we merited the opportunity to speak up for it. Um, and so Mr. Friend has, um, you know, he dropped me off to college. Uh, he and his wife came to parent weekends. My parents could not. Um, there are so many ways in which we think about um, the people in our lives and how they have um, helped to lift us. And he is someone that lifted many, many generations of students simply because he believed in their innate power to make changes that were just and good. Um, and I will never forget that. And also I feel so strongly that part of my responsibility is to carry that legacy forward through my actions and through my character, um, through the way in which I raise my children. Um, through the way in which I speak with students, um, through my respect. Uh, and so, yes, um, I've had many, many meaningful experiences, um, and I've been blessed to have people in my corner who just have believed, even in times when I may have faltered in my own belief of self. Um, he is someone that... Um, yeah, I, 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 I fully believe that my life would be different um, if not for Papa Brick. Amazing story. And I think it's so important to share stories like that because, you know, we all have, or many of us have a mentor like that or someone that, that did shape our lives, um, you know, in a, in a similar way or in a very important way. So thank you for sharing that. And I want to continue the, uh, the positive thread um, and uh, talk a little bit more about where you turn to uh, for inspiration in your job and in your life. Mm. There are several um, places that I turn to for inspiration. One of the places that I turn to for inspiration is my um, immediate family. Um, my husband, uh, whose uh, support, without his support, um, the lived experience that I have each and every day wouldn't be possible. You know, the amount of juggling um, that takes place and decision-making that takes place, really that partnership is, is critical. Um, the other are my daughters. Um, they each have a sliver of my persona, um, and those slivers are very pronounced in each of them. <laughs> So it's, uh, you know, if, if, if you're spiritual in nature or religious in nature, it's almost like um, 
the, the spiritual energies above wanted me to, to have a concentrated focus on different aspects of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so for me, that has been a true gift and a gift of discovery, even about me. Um, and so they're a point of constant inspiration. They're question askers, they're risk takers, they're quite independent. Um, my oldest uh, creates a lot of art that really uh, connects to um, a lot of the things that we have been speaking about in this conversation. Um, and so it's really amazing to, to come face to face to the messages in her art. I also turn to, for inspiration, um, to music. Uh, music feeds my soul. I love listening to um, great music. I love gospel. Um, I love R&B. I love Motown. I love salsa. Um, so music is, is inspiration. I have to say another point of inspiration for me is also um, uh, orators. So I love listening, for example, to great TED Talks. Um, because I'm somebody who absorbs um, body language and the intonation and the punctuating of particular words or the rhythm of the delivery of a conversation or a speech. Um, So I love good TED Talks. Um, I'm also uh, very much inspired by um, children. And as I said, I've worked with children um, forever. Um, but young children really inspire me because um, they do not understand risk as a um, value or as a skill. Um, it's innate to their being. That idea of experiential engagement is innate to their experience. Um, self-discovery and what, what happens when you don't know something and you venture into it. Um, that sense of wonder and their eyes lighting up, um, the, the, the idea that if I fall, if I just keep trying, well, of course I'm going to get it. You know, perseverance um, personified um, through their actions. And so I gain a lot of inspiration from children. Um, and children of all ages, I define high schoolers, you know, they are young adults, but they're children. So um, often they really tap into the very things that um, we as adults, because of our ability to micromanage our own lives um, and exercise control of our own lives, uh, sometimes we um, uh, are more inhibited um, than they are. Um, so... Yeah, I gain inspiration. I gain inspiration from conversations like the one we're having, Scott, you know, where you're asking, you know, you're asking questions that cause me to have to reflect upon that which matters most. And that's something that I consider a gift. You know, the idea that somebody cares to ask those questions, that they find that there could be meaning in those questions, um, that's inspiration. Um, And the other is, a very concrete one, is that um, I get to work with a group of colleagues every summer as part of the Diversity Leadership Institute um, as one of the faculty members, um, and they are pure inspiration. Um, You know, another great effort by NAIS, and certainly I'm biased, in saying this, but the ability to be able to engage with a stellar, committed, 
heart-minded group of adults who welcome 70, 80 people each summer um, with the idea that together we are going to learn and we are going to grow and we are going to transform. Um, that is a source of inspiration um, that is really meaningful um, in my world right now as well. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, honestly, Chrissy, I could talk to you for a couple more hours if you let me. But um, I know that, you know, obviously we talked about uh, how busy you are and, and time is valuable. So I'm going to go ahead and close out our, our conversation um, with one of my favorite questions, um, which is a lighter one, uh, which is if you had one more hour in your day, uh, your busy, important day, what would you do? Um, if I had one more hour every day, I'd always make a point in that hour to connect with nature, to really go outdoors and breathe in and take in the sun, hopefully, or the rain or the clouds. Um, but nature is really important to me. Um, if I had one more hour in the day, I would make sure that in that hour there would be a lot of laughter. I love to laugh. I love to make others laugh. I love giggle laughing, that really deep laughing. I would find a way to either get into a little mischief or a little um, fun time and just make sure that there's laughter. And the third piece within that hour, and I would hope that all three of these could happen in that hour, mm -hmm. um, as I said, our world um, has us uh, often. Um, making us believe that we have to move, move, move um, in order to get to the place that we're striving to get to. And often what we need to do is stand still. And that gets us there much faster. And so the ability to stand still, to listen to ourselves within, to take away the thoughts that really don't allow us to filter through to what's most important, that stillness is a gift we're giving to ourselves. Um, and within that hour each day, I would um, protect that um, and allow for that to be the case. Well, I can't think of a, a better way to end our conversation. So I wanted to thank everyone uh, for listening to this episode of NEIS Member Voices. And I also want to thank Chrissy again so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, we're going to include some resources on some of the areas that we discussed uh, on our website at NEIS.org. Uh, so be sure to visit the website for new podcast episodes and to find more resources for you and for your school. And we also always want to hear from you. Uh, if you want to share any stories uh, with us, if you have any questions, uh, comments, anything at all, please feel free to send them our way um, at membership at NEIS.org. So Chrissy, thanks again so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Scott. I really um, have appreciated the time that you've taken. I wish you the very best um, as you continue this series. Certainly, I'm one who um, enjoys them. So thank you. And uh, I hope we connect again soon.